You don't really have to remember the words and the ideas. It's just an awakening of what's inside. Well, that's nice we get a baby to listen to. Hi. Hi, baby. Yeah. Buddha's in small size packages. Yeah. During this last uh, week, about 20 of us who were the members of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council plus a few other teachers from the Insight Meditation Society in the East Coast, our kind of sister center there, um, were on retreat here ourselves um, with uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who was an American abbot of a large monastery in England. And an old friend of mine, in fact, he's the person that introduced me to Ajahn Chah, to my teacher. So I've known him for 36 years now, or 37 years. And it was quite a wonderful retreat. It was very inspiring. And then at the end of the retreat, this last weekend, a number of us all went down to the Sati Center in Palo Alto, which is, uh, again, a, a Buddhist center connected with Spirit Rock, um, through the teacher Gil Fronstel, to do a weekend of um, storytelling and remembering of Ajahn Chah and the monastery and training that this whole collective of Western teachers who had gathered from around the world had experienced. And so I thought this evening, since all that was fresh and uh, alive for me, that I would speak as I have Oh, every few years, talked about Ajahn Chah, my teacher, um, this evening, Monday. Um, and I really want to talk about the way that he taught and trained us, uh, who were practitioners there, because it might remind you of the understandings and trainings that are important in your own spiritual life. Um, he had a great gift, this man, of humor and love and courage. Um, he was a true elder, elder in the, in the sense that we don't see so much in our society any, anymore. Elders are somebody who tell the truth. It doesn't really matter what anybody thinks. They just say it like it is. It's a wonderful thing. Elders are people who've seen so much joy and so much sorrow, both, that they really understand the world to be made of those and have made their peace with things so that you can go and say anything happened and the elder nods and says, yeah, yeah, that too. It's like James Baldwin who said at one point, I believe that if all the hatred and all the war and all the ways that people abuse one another 
were to stop, then those people would be faced with a far more difficult task, which is to sit with their own pain instead of making it for someone else. And in a way, an elder is somebody who's done that and found a way to awaken this great heart of compassion so that they can be in the world and be unafraid. Ajahn Chah lived in this rural part of Thailand uh, on the border of Laos and Cambodia along the Mekong River Valley. Um, And he became a monk after, as a teenager, watching his father die and became, as one does, this mystery happens when you sit with someone that you love who dies, Um, became amazed and frightened and interested and um, moved. How should we live? It's, It's so short, this life really. And we're all going to die. No one in this room is exempt. And even though it seems like it's a long time away, um, nobody even knows that for sure. We don't know the time of our death. All we know is that it's going to happen. And so he went to seek out teachers and he wandered in the jungles and the forests with various masters living in caves and living off alms food from what he would get in the villages. And he really wanted, he said, I really wanted to come to understand what it meant to be free in this life. So he would go out wherever it was difficult, he would do that. If there was an area where there were tigers and the villages, villagers were afraid of that, then the, the monks from this forest tradition that he was a part of would say, oh, tiger is good, a place to go practice. He'd said, and then you'd be sitting there at night and you'd hear sounds in the jungle and the thought would come to you, oh my God, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming. He said, and then I began to reflect, what mantra could I say that would bring the tiger here? And I realized, uh-oh, I'm saying it, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming, I better change my mantra. <laughs> And after he became, many, many years after he became someone who was unafraid in some deep way and really happy, then people began to seek him out and they offered him this thick forest grove with huge ancient trees and it was supposed to be a place haunted by ghosts and there were certainly a lot of cobras and snakes there because I lived there for some years and it was filled with all kinds of wild animals. And he said, oh, the perfect place for a meditation monastery. I think if he came to Spirit Rock, he'd say, "Mm, it's okay. Kind of comfortable, isn't it? (laughs) You know? Hmm? Because what he was interested in communicating to others was the freedom of this human heart that is possible for every single being when we would do the chanting in the monastery in the mornings and the evenings, paying our respects to the Buddha, the Awakened One, and to the Dharma, the teachings, he would say, where do you think the Buddha is? You think the Buddha lived in India? You can go to India and find him? And the Dharma, where do you think that is? In some old books, you know, all these scribblings. If you read the books, he said, one page says one thing, another page says something different. Which is the real Dharma? 
And then he'd say, here, only here, in yourself, there. He said, if you want to find awakening, the chance we would do would be just, would say, the teachings of the Buddha offer freedom here and now, in this timeless present moment, for each individual to be discovered within their own heart. And he would say, you have to find this, it's in you. So when I attended the monastery and visited it in the beginning, um, finally I ordained as a monk, I chose to go there, and I showed up in my robes, and he looked at me and he said, well, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. And I thought, well, that's kind of not, you know, the greeting you expect when you're entering the monastery. Like, welcome, you know, this beautiful forest grove. We're all going to be peaceful or learn Buddhist practice together. He said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. I said, what do you mean? He said, there are two kinds of suffering. That kind which we run away from and follows us everywhere. And that kind which we turn and face until the end so that we're no longer afraid of it. He said, that's the kind we do here. And if you're willing to do that, you know, come on in. And if not, go someplace else. You know, he really didn't mince words. And you went in this beautiful ancient forest and there were little signs there. You there, be quiet. We're trying to meditate. And if these people walk in these little paths or, you know, what have you been doing with your life? Isn't it time to wake up? Sort of like Burma shade, these little kind of... <laughs> But it was an island of sanity because around, not many miles away, was the war in Cambodia and the war in Laos. And you could see the bombers going over at night and hear the bombs at a distance. And people were absolutely crazy around the war. And this was a place where you could lose your gold watch and someone would find it and save it for you. And where people spoke the truth and they forgave one another for difficulties and they respected one another. It, it's as if it was a, a living library of the way that human beings could respect one another no matter who came, they were greeted with respect. No matter how crazy the world was around. And uh, the teachings there were really, really simple. When he came to America, my teacher Ajahn Chah, I introduced him to this Zen master, Sansanim, a Korean teacher. And in this book of Ajahn Chah's teachings that a friend of mine and I translated and told a lot of stories, Zen master Sansanim said, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so happy to write the foreword to this book for my Dharma friend, Ajahn Chah. We have the same mind, he said. And in Zen, the teaching is so simple. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're tired, you sleep. If a hungry person comes to you, you give them food. If a thirsty person comes, you give them something to drink. That's all, that's enough. That is the whole of Buddhism. It's so simple. And this was the spirit of the monastery. There was a quality of dignity. People, the monks who lived there lived in a very strict form of meditation and uh, monastic practice. We had all these rules of the mindful way to hold your bowl and fold your robes and to sit and walk. But Ajahn Chah made it very clear. He would say, do you think these rules are going to get you enlightened? Absolutely not, he said. We could make up a whole other set of rules. He said, but the fact that you have to do them means that you have to pay attention. 
And also he said the fact that some of these rules make no sense. They're these ancient things from India and you have to do them anyway. He said, and then you sit there and you have to do this thing and you say, this is stupid and you complain and you get restless and you say, I want to go somewhere else and I don't like these rules. He said, that's where enlightenment will come. He said, because you start to surrender to the way things are. The teachings that he offered were of dignity and surrender. We would go out every morning before the sun rose with our bowls and walk barefoot five miles, ten miles to some village nearby. and People would offer food to us. That was the food that we ate. We would share that food. Um, and some days you'd get good food, and some days you'd get this coarse kind of nothing, terrible, just some old rice and, you know, maybe... You'd get a little curry and maybe not. Maybe a little bit of some fish sauce with it and that's what you'd have to eat. And you just ate what you got. Um, and we sat not on these nice, you know, cushions and things that we're used to here. It was a stone floor and you put down a little square, a sitting cloth. So like a, you know, a napkin basically to sit down. <laughs> it was so painful. I mean, I'm, I'm not very flexible anyway. My knees were up like this, you know, and I'm sitting there. And we'd come in and we'd bow and we'd do an hour of the evening chanting and then we'd have an hour of meditation. And I was so painful. My body was so aching. My butt was hurting. So I'd wait. It would get dark, just like this. It was just in the evening and get dark. And I'd see everybody's eyes were closed and they were sitting. And I'd go and I, I'd arranged it in the beginning so I could sit right next to this big stone pillar. And as soon as everybody's <laughs> eyes were closed, then I could, oh. <laughs> so after a couple of weeks, we're sitting there and he does this evening Dharma talk and he looks around. And he said, the purpose of our monastic practice is to learn an independence, to find our own inner dignity, to not need to, and he looked over at me, not need to lean on things. We sat for hours. We'd do sometimes once a week or twice a week. We would do all night sitting, stay up all night, sitting and walking. And we took care. There was a kind of impeccability sweep the paths. He showed us how to make these bamboo brooms and how to clean things and how to bow wherever you went. And he made it very clear. He said, uh, one point, the way of practice here is just to pay attention to what is in front of you, to what is given you in this moment. This is the way to discover the freedom of the Buddha. Be natural, be present. Whatever you do, if you're doing your chores, be mindful. If you're cleaning the toilets, don't feel that you're doing it as a favor for someone else. There is much dharma to be learned in cleaning the toilets. Don't feel that you're practicing meditation when sitting still with your eyes closed, cross-legged. Some of you complain there isn't enough time here to meditate because we have chores and alms round and chanting. Is there enough time to breathe? This is your meditation. Mindfulness and naturalness, attention to whatever you do. So it was very difficult in some ways. It was demanding. But he was there with you. It would get really cold, the coldest days, and he'd be sitting there freezing, the wind would be coming. And he'd sit there and he'd say, cold, isn't it? You know, that's how it was. 
just the way that it was. We'd sitting up all night and so tired and he'd look over and say, getting tired, aren't you? And he'd just smile and sit there. It's like he'd test you, you know. And yet underneath he trusted the sincerity of the heart of those who came, that people really want to awaken. These Buddhist texts, so many of them which begin with the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. And so whoever came, whatever class or caste or race or, or nation, whatever came to him, he would offer his respects and say, see them too, see the Buddha nature and say, you too are the son and daughter of the Buddha. You are, you are a nobly born one. Remember who you really are and come and join us. And when it was hard, he would tease us. You know, he'd be having a hard time. He'd say, having a hard time? Huh? And he'd kind of smile and laugh. <laughs> you know, are you angry? How are you doing? You getting angry? And if you'd say no, he'd say, oh, good. You know, say, say yes. Or he'd say, are you suffering? Say, you know, yes. He'd say, you're angry? He'd say, well, whose fault is that? You know, are you suffering? Oh, must be quite attached. Huh, interesting. Something to meditate on. Oh. And then he'd laugh some more. And he simply paid attention to what was happening in the moment and looked at those who were in front of him and saw when we were frightened and caught and confused and said, you could be free. You could be. When we were, we invited him to teach a, a retreat in America. We brought him here in 1979. And he came to our big center in Massachusetts that's kind of like Spirit Rock, a big retreat center. And he was there for a couple of weeks and there were hundreds some people sitting and walking. And uh, it's nice to hear the kids outside. Um, you know, meditation centers in Asia, you think it's supposed to be quiet, but it's not. Actually, if you go to Burma or Thailand, and you know, there, there are these beautiful forest monasteries, but then there'll be a, you know, a wedding in the village nearby, and they'll have the biggest loudspeakers all night long playing you know, music for you to meditate by from the <laughs> movies, and there'll be visitors coming, and, and that's the meditation. So anyway, he, he was at our meditation center in Massachusetts, and he looked around, and he said, these people are very sincere. I can see the sincerity of Westerners. He said, but oh, they suffer. They really know how to suffer, don't they? <laughs> he said, it's like a big hospital here. <laughs> and then he would wander around outside when people were doing walking meditation. He'd go up to people and he'd say, I hope you get well soon. I hope you get well soon. You know, it's so sweet. So there he was, he was the elder who was saying that you, your heart can be free. You are the sons and daughters of the Buddha. And you can find this in yourself, no matter what the circumstance, no matter how difficult it is, you can either contract around it and become all frightened and lost. We all have done that, the body of fear. Or you can remember who you really are. You can bow to it and say, yes, this too is part of the dance. He also taught with a tremendous honesty about himself, about others. He was a sage who had faced death, as an elder has. He said, if you don't remember death, life is really confusing. Only when you remember death can you find your way. 
And he wasn't afraid then to speak the truth. There was this um, really wealthy kind of Thai um, businessman who had retired. He'd owned all these factories and he came and he was dressed in silks and he came to the monastery to pay his respect. And he said, you know, I've retired and I'm thinking of doing something good with all my wealth and money and maybe I should build hospitals with it. Maybe I should give it to your monastery in places like this, sort of putting out the bait a little bit, you know. Maybe I should use it for um, uh, schools or, you know, what do you think I should do with it? And he was so full of himself. And Ajahn Chah looked at him and he said, you know, when you come up to the road to the monastery, you cross that big bridge over the Moon River. He said, I think you should take all your money in a big basket and throw it off the bridge into the river. That's what you should do with your money. You know, it was a great moment. It's just wonderful. He went to England before he came to America and he had a meeting with the British Buddhist Society, yes. And all these people who were very proper Buddhists for many decades, you know, studying and reading. And there was an old woman who came and she had just so many questions about the Abhidhamma and the Buddhist psychology and the suttas. And she was asking on and on and on. And he kept saying, well, you know, are you using this? And she would ask some other question. And finally he just shook his head. He said, lady in this very kind of colloquial language he could use when he wanted to, especially this proper... He said, lady, you're like somebody who keeps chickens and goes around picking up the chicken shit instead of the eggs. (laughs) I beg your pardon. (laughs) I think you've missed something here. But he talked about himself as well. He said, I had so many problems when I practiced. I had so much doubt and so much suffering and body pain. He said, I remember sitting in the forest in the dry season and once in a while there'll be these rainstorms that come. He said, and it started to rain and everything I had was completely wet and I was sitting there and I was weeping and I couldn't tell if it was by tears or whether it was the water. But I said, well, I just got to go through this. And he said, I just sat and I sat. He kind of, he had a kind of daring to him. Later on, he said, if you haven't wept deeply, you probably haven't begun to meditate. You know. And I remember, um, and he was so honest with me too, I went back to see him after he started to get very ill at the end of his life. He was quite weak. And one day, this we were wandering around the monastery, um, and this group of people came to see him. A... Uh, a woman probably, maybe in her late 30s or so, mother of two children, she had cancer that was metastasized. and She came for healing, and she was there with her parents and some other friends, this whole party came, and they brought a bowl of water and uh, some of the things that are used to make holy water. And Please, Ajahn, would you do healing for her because she has these young children. And he was very sympathetic and compassionate. And we sat down in the forest and he did all these chants and mantras and blessed her and made the holy water and sprinkled her and did all this. It was quite lovely. And then sent them on their way. We were sitting there on this little kind of log in the forest. And they left and he elbowed me and he said, did I heal her? (laughs) 
I said, I don't know. He said, yeah, you're a teacher. Tell me, is this the way we heal people? Hmm, come on. I said, I don't know. He said, if she gets better, then everyone will say, oh, the great master healed her, right? I'll become so famous. He said, and if she dies, no one will remember she came here. They'll just miss her, those who loved her. He said, so yeah, you're the teacher, huh? You healing all these people? Kind of el elbow me. What do you do as a teacher? Hmm? And it's amazing because when I met him, it was not such a big group of people around him. There were 40 people in the monastery and he was not very well known at all. Um, and when he died, um, a million people came to his funeral and to the monastery in those days. And it was way out. It was not, not an easy place to get to. But the way he taught was so honest and so simple and so compassionate. It somehow touched people. And people just began to stream in from all over the country and elsewhere. He was also honest about the people around him. It wasn't just himself. You know, his students. I mean, we went in 1976. I brought some good friends, uh, Mark Epstein, Ram Dass, Joseph Goldstein, a group of us who were involved in uh, meditation practice uh, to meet Ajahn Chah. We were traveling in Asia. And Ram Dass at that point, I, mean, I, I guess I was like 31 or 30, yeah, something like that. I was just a pretty young teacher. And Ramdas was, oh, probably 15 years older. He was like 45, 46, something like that. And uh, he'd just come from Bali. He'd been in India for a while, and then he went to Bali, and he was lying on the beach, and he was really tanned, and he'd been surfing and kind of taking care of his body and looking good, you know. And So we all came, and we bowed to Ajahn Chah, and I introduced him to the people I brought. I said, here's Joseph Goldstein, who I teach meditation with, and... Ram Dass was a meditation teacher and spiritual teacher in America and these other people in the group and so forth. And Ajahn Chah looked at all of us and he said, Oh yeah, who is this old man you brought? Tell me about him. It's like the moment he looked at Ram Dass, he got his number of this guy who was trying to look young. He said, Who is the old guy you brought along? Tell me about it. He would introduce his monks sometimes. The Westerners would be sitting around, and it was sort of like the seven dwarfs. He said, this is my sleeping monk. He just sleeps all the time, and, you know, like sleepy and dopey. That's the one that likes to doubt. All the time, she just, you know, question after question. You'd think that there'd be an end to her doubt, but there isn't. It's phenomenal. It's like it's infinite, you know, and he'd laugh. And that one likes to sit and meditate all the time. I think He's afraid to relate to the world or something. I don't know what his problem is. All he does is meditate all the time, you know. And he said later, he said when I was translating for him, he said, in this translator I got, I don't think he really translates very well. He said he leaves out the hard stuff. He just makes it sound so sweet, you know. Don't trust what he says. It takes the sting out, doesn't he, huh? So there was a presence of just being who you were and seeing things as they are. His teaching was things are this way. And it doesn't mean <coughs> that one <coughs> accepts the injustices of the world, you know, the warfare and the ecological destruction and the racism and all the 
things that are wrong that we know about. But he said, if you can't find some peace in yourself first, how are you going to help anybody else? You have to start with that. So we started with dignity and surrender and a kind of honesty. And then in that, he taught us a way of letting go. He said that spiritual life isn't about all the books you've read and all the ideas you have. It's not something to accumulate. It's either now or never. It's so simple. You want to practice the Buddha's Eightfold Path, right speech, right understanding, right livelihood, right concentration, right effort, all of those things. He said, I'll tell you about the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path, he said, is two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. That's the Eightfold Path. And the heart or the mind is that which walks the path. And if you can walk this path with attention, know these eight doors, examine them, see pleasant and painful and neutral joy and sorrow that arises and understand here, then all of the Dharma of the awakened ones will be revealed to you. It is no place else other than your own experience. Don't try to become anything. Don't make some special spiritual idea. Don't make yourself into anything. Don't be a meditator. Don't become enlightened. Just sit and be with the things as they are and you will learn. Do you dare, he said. The idea wasn't to become something. We have all these spiritual maps and teachings and we spend our lives trying to be somebody else or get somewhere else. That in the end doesn't help us. I mean, certainly there are things that we can do to deepen our compassion, to learn to forgive, to be more present. But the only place we can learn them is here and now, in this moment, moment by moment. When you meet this person and when you get in your car and when you go back to the people you live with, that's the place that you can either be free or not. He said, most people are looking for enlightenment outside themselves. If you want to learn, look at other people 10%. Look at you-know-who, 90%. He said, that's where where you'll learn something. Otherwise, you get confused. He said, I had one teacher who told us to eat mindfully and carefully, yet he made noises when he ate. He was really sloppy. And he told us to be really careful. And I sat there and watched him, and I suffered so much. (laughs) He didn't. He was just having a good time eating. He said, some people can drive fast and they're still careful. Other people drive slowly and they still have many accidents. You can't tell from the outside what's going on in there. You know where to practice, where there's suffering and where there's freedom. I mean, I complained because he wasn't consistent. He'd say one thing one time and another thing another time. Come on, you know, you don't look so enlightened to me. (laughs) Only a Westerner would say things like that. You know, or he'd be scratching himself, and I'd think, geez, an enlightened person scratched himself? We have all these ideas. Why wouldn't an enlightened person scratch themselves if they itch? But you know, we have all these fantastic ideas. Oh, they're going to sit like some stupid statue or something. That's enlightenment. You know, he was actually the most alive person. 
But I, oh, no, you've got to be like this. So I said, I don't know. Are you enlightened? You don't seem so enlightened. He said, oh, that's good. I said, what do you mean that's good? You know, I think I'm going to go find another teacher. He said, it's good because if I fit your image of enlightenment, you'd still think you could find it out here. And the Buddha is not out here to be found. There is only one place that you can awaken the freedom of the Blessed One, of that, again, nobly born, of that possibility of your own heart. Only one place to find it. So for meditation, he was so simple. It wasn't about some states or attainment. He said, take, his description was to take the one seat. There's a room, six doors and windows, you open them. Ah, yes, you get the sounds of the children. You get the night air. You get your reactions. Oh, they should be quieter. They should, you know, this is a meditation place. Or maybe you love children. Hey, great, we should have the children out there every time. You know, all your reactions inside. He said, you open the doors and the windows and you take the seat and you have only one job, to stay in the seat and let all the dance of life come and go and that will teach you better than any other teacher can do. So meditation isn't for some state. Oh, I got it. Oh, now it's so peaceful. Oh, I got to hold on to it. Oh, I got it. Don't let anything bother me. <laughs> you know, but it's like you're holding your breath. Oh my God, oh my God. Something's going to bother. <sighs> it's just to be with things as they are. There was a real initiation to be with him because it was difficult and it was demanding. But mostly what was demanding was that you had to be with yourself. You know, the most difficult teacher of all in a certain way. As Miss Piggy would say, moi. Right, this one here. And he would watch, you know, and if you liked to talk to people a lot, he'd eventually send you to some godforsaken cave monastery where you had to face your aloneness. And if you loved solitude, you'd be assigned to some monastery in the city on the road where people would come day and night to visit and ask you questions until you could be free there, you know. If you were afraid of ghosts, you'd go and sit out in the charnel grounds in the forest at night and just sit there. If you were restless, he'd say, good, be restless, die of restlessness. We'll give you a good funeral, he'd say, right? Or bored, face it. Otherwise, you know, you're bored and you turn on the TV or you call people or you eat, you open the refrigerator and you can't be with yourself. You're angry, fine, be angry, learn about it. You know, go sit there and be really angry. I was angry. Close the windows in your little hut. There's this tin roof in this, you know, hot summer day. Wrap yourself in your robes. Just sit there in the fire of anger. You'll learn about anger, all right? Just sit with it. Or sleepiness. If you'd sit up all night, I'd be so sleepy. So you go sit on the edge of the well. That will help with your sleepiness. <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to fall in. He said, do a lot of walking meditation. Walk backward in the forest. That will help you. Walk backward in the forest at night. You'll learn to stay awake. Good, try that. Is it necessary to sit for hours in meditation? Somebody asked him. You know, is that what will free us? 
And he loved meditation. He was very happy to sit. He wanted us all to learn to sit so we could be with ourselves. But he said, no, sitting for hours on end, retreat after retreat, is not necessary. Some people think the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. Wisdom comes from being mindful wherever you are. It begins when you wake up. And it goes to when you go to sleep. That is the place of practice. So surrender, dignity, honesty, letting go, being with things as they are. Letting go doesn't mean really letting go. It means letting be. Let it be. Again, you know, Ajahn Chah, he taught from this wisdom heart, from the great heart of a Buddha, with compassion and for everybody that came. He was really a very kind person, even though at times he was demanding. And he said, you all suffer so much. Why don't you learn this gift that the Buddhas, that the elders of every tradition have offered us, this human life? You can live in a different way. He described this as stopping the war at one point. He said, we human beings are constantly in combat at war to escape the fact of being so limited, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with evil, waging war with good, waging war with what is too small or what is too big, waging war with what is too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. Isn't it time to stop the war, he would say, the real war. So one friend who was here at the weekend, uh, who became a monk, spent 18 years as a monk, actually, a very, very beautiful man, um, grew up in uh, the South, uh, in Kentucky, and um, he was a champion athlete, this man. you know, an all-American. And he was also a great scholar, and he was quite ambitious. Um, And he got a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, so he was, you know, really something. And he studied philosophy at Oxford, and then somehow he began to read something Buddhist, and it piqued his curiosity, and the next thing you know, he left Oxford, and he went to find a monastery, um, which really just that distressed his parents who were hoping he would go to medical school, but that's another story. Anyway, and he came to study with Ajahn Chah, and he spent a couple of years in the monastery learning to meditate, and he went to one of the little branch monasteries, and he said, you know, it was so hard because I had such, he had such a kind of refined intellect, and I had so many ideas, and I'd read so many things, and I'd sit in meditation, and I'd try to figure it all out. There's nothing that can make you, you know, give you more suffering than trying to figure it all out. <laughs> and it's really one of the worst. Um, but he tried to do that, you know, for a long, long time. And then he got sick, as many of us did there, because we were living in the different kind of conditions, and you'd get malaria or typhoid fever, which I got. I was very, very sick. And he did too, it turns out. But he got very, very sick. And he was losing weight, and he went from being this great athletic person to kind of this skinny, skinnier and kind of weaker. And 
and more and more depressed and he was trying to figure it all out and figure it all out and he wasn't figuring anything out. And he said, my suffering just got more and more and worse and worse. And he said, I just felt like I had to give up. I couldn't do anything. It was just the end. I mean, I didn't think I'd ever smile again in this life. And I went to the abbot of this little branch monastery in the forest where I'd gone because it was the most ascetic and you could really practice and I was going to get enlightened. Here I was a basket case instead. And I said, I have to go see the master. Can I go see Ajahn Chah? So the abbot took me to see Ajahn Chah. And I went and I bowed and he said, I was about to weep really. I said, I just, I can't do it. It's just so hard. And Ajahn Chah sat there for a minute and he looked at him and he said, you know, you remind me of a chipmunk. <laughs> he said, I looked at Ajahn Chah and he said, a chipmunk? <laughs> you know, here I am going to Asia to meet the master and I've suffered so much and I've come back and I'm looking for wisdom and I'm a chipmunk? <laughs> you know? And he said, yeah, it's like this. He said, if you look, there were these beautiful little chipmunks in this, in this jungle where we lived. He said, if you watch them, they know how to go down the narrowest little branch, they kind of skinny down this branch, and then they hop over to the next tree and go up that branch, and they, they can almost dance through the trees. He loved the animals of the forest so much. He said, but if you watch a little chipmunk, a baby chipmunk, there's the mother hopping from tree to tree, it will go along a branch and try to make a little jump, and then it will, and the word in Thai is dok. <laughs> dok means and it will fall flat on the ground stunned, shake itself oh god and its mother will be chirping you know, this chipmunk's this kind of chirping sound from up there and it will kind of climb back up to the tree and start to and it will try to run again through the branches and make another little hop and right down to the ground kindergarten you know First day in kindergarten, chipmunks, other little chipmunks playing, go from one branch, jump to another. Dog. Little stars around its head lying there. Oh my God, I'm a tree. First grade, ah, bigger chipmunk now. Little bigger branch, take another leap. Dog. Right? He went up second grade, third grade, middle school, high school, college. Master's degree. Dog. <laughs> Doctorate. Dog. <laughs> he just went on and on and on. And finally, this man who thought he would never smile again was just lying on the floor, rolling with laughter. He said, so I guess something, you know, here you end. Rhodes Scholar, you went to Oxford. You did, you were the big time, you were at the top. Dog. <laughs> what can you do? What can you do? Hmm? He said, these days, even in Thailand, he said they pick the mangoes too early. They pick them so they can send them to market and let them ripen in the baskets. He said, they were so sweet when I was a child. But you know how it is in the markets now. They pick them to, you know, ship them some other place. He said, that's not the way of the human heart. It's not the way of the breath or the body or who we really are. He said, everything has its season. And if you try to hurry it up, do you know what happens? Dog. <laughs> it's just the way it is. 
He had so much kindness for, you know, we judge ourselves so harshly. We have so many ideals. What do you do when there's all this judgment? He would just bow to it. Oh, that's the judging mind, isn't it? It's just that. It's okay. Fear comes. What do you do? Oh, fear. Bow to the fear. I mean, we did one. I tell this story. We were going to this monastery and we had this really frightening ride through the mountains in this narrow road and this driver who wouldn't slow down and passing these buses and logging trucks and you couldn't see around the curves and stuff. And we were both hanging on for dear life. And finally we got to the monastery in the Cambodian border. He looked at me and he said, scary ride, wasn't it? You know, it's just that's what it was. It didn't matter if you were a master or not. This was a scary ride. Did you enjoy it? Hmm? Scary ride. Huh? Just the way things are. But what do I do when I doubt? He said, doubting is natural. Everybody doubts. You can either get caught up in it or you can step back and see the doubting mind. You bow to it. Oh, that's the doubting mind. Watch the doubts come and go like everything and rest in this pure awareness that can know what arises and know what passes away and hold it with compassion. Or desire comes or fear comes. Or thinking, you'll be sitting in meditation and you start to get quiet. And you say, oh, I've got it. I'm near enlightenment. It's going to happen. And he said, the minute you have that thought, you know what happens. Dog, right? <laughs> what do you do? So you bow to it. You say, okay, I fell again. There we are. And you go back. The idea isn't to hold on to a single thing, but to let yourself be where you are and hold it in compassion. And then if somebody's hungry, you feed them. And if something needs to be tended to, you do it, but not because of some big idea of how the world is, you're going to be the person that changes this world, but because it's there and your heart knows what to do. He said, the heart has so much wisdom if we can be still and listen. It knows how to respond. It knows what to do. And it's not any place else but here. You know, it's not in India. As he said, you know, we pay respects to the Buddha and the Dharma. But what is the Buddha? When we see with the eye of wisdom, with the heart of compassion, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any history or any physical being. The Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of the truth of the awakened mind. That is who you are. So the Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened. He was never born. He never died. And this timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place. When we take refuge in the Buddha or the Dharma, all things in the world are free for us. They become our teachers, proclaiming the one true nature of life. This past week, um, somebody who's come Monday night for, for years and years now, who's a very dear friend, um, Francine Levin, uh, died in Switzerland. And she used to sit right there, you know, and laugh. And very wonderful. She founded the Marin Cancer Breast Watch, uh, which is a um, Marin um, uh, Breast Cancer Watch, which is an organization to... Um, really study our diet and nutrition and environment um, and the things that 
most of what modern cancer research hasn't looked at um, it, that uh, are so obvious that we need to pay attention to so that we can learn not just to heal ourselves but also heal the earth in which we live. She had a beautiful sense of humor and um, a great spirit. And uh, I talked to her in Switzerland on the phone. I chanted to her and, you know, went through the usual Buddhist teachings of letting go into the light and remembering who you really are. But I said, you know, Francine, if you're going to come back, you know, come and be my friend, because she's so wonderful. I said, if you do come back, come to my neighborhood, please. And Ajahn Chah, I remember one day, this very elderly woman came to see him. She was a kind of great-grandmother, and she said, I traveled some distance to see you, and I'm near the end of my life, and I want you to give me some words. You know, and he would give teachings that were appropriate for each person. So these were the words for somebody at the end of their life. He said, listen, listen, you woman, you know, there's no one here, just this, no owner, no one to be old, to be young, to be good or bad or weak or strong. Just what's here, just this, the elements of nature, earth, air, fire and water, playing themselves out, an empty dance, no one born and no one to die. Those who speak of death are speaking the language of children, but in the language of the heart, of the Dharma, there's no such thing as death. When we carry a burden, it's heavy, he said. When there's no one to carry it, there's not a problem in the world, and he laughed. Don't look for good or bad or anything at all. Don't try to be anything. Nothing more. Just this. Just rest where you are in the eternal present. Be who you are, and all the rest will unfold. And Francine really lived in that spirit in many, many ways. Um, she was the kind of person that inspires the people around her because she lived her own life the way she wanted. She was herself. Try to be mindful, said Ajahn Chah, wherever you are in your life. Pay attention and let things take their natural course. And then your heart will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will clearly see the nature of all things. You'll see many strange and wondrous things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. This human realm, it said, is the perfect place to awaken because it's got the mixture of joy and sorrow, of gain and loss, of praise and blame. If it was too nice, nobody would bother to awaken. You know, you get entranced. You know that. I mean, I have a hard time 
when I go and teach retreats in Hawaii, actually. I do, because people are there already so comfortable, and they say, well, sitting, but it's a little uncomfortable. Maybe I should just go down to the beach, watch the sunset, smoke a little Maui weed, you know? I mean, why meditate? Hey, you know, the heaven realms are not really a good place to awaken. But the realms of pain aren't very good either. You know, if you go to the places where the fire's too hot, where there's too much sorrow and too much injustice and too much suffering, then we're all just trying to survive. But we're actually in the perfect place, you know. Believe it or not, you have the perfect life to awaken in. Say, oh, not mine. Yeah, you have the perfect life to awaken in. And the message, if Ajahn Chah were here tonight, he would say, well, it's good that you come and you listen to these teachings and so forth, but it's not going to help you all that much to listen, you know. You've got to do it. And do it doesn't mean just meditating or having meditation practice. That might help you in some way. But really to study in your own heart where you're caught, where you're afraid, where you're not free, and know that it's possible to be free there because it is. Let's sit for a minute. What if you were to take the worst problem in your life, the biggest difficulty, the greatest suffering, and to raise it into your awareness and hold it with the great heart of compassion for you, for everyone involved, not trying to fix it in this moment, but just bring compassion to that the conflict, the necessary healing, others, your own body and mind, just compassion. What if you were to let yourself see it, this is the way it is, without judging, without so much fear, even if there's pain in it, this is the pain that there is, in some honorable way, this is what's true. So if you were the Buddha, just if you happen to be the Buddha by accident, how would you handle this situation? You see, we really know inside. We do know.
I'd like us to do a little chant to end tonight for Francine. And also someone came up who was a co-worker of Michelle O'Connor, the woman in San Francisco who was killed riding her bicycle last week. Remember when there was that whole bicycle rally and just that morning she was someone who worked with Michelle, so also to think of her and anyone else that you love and care for, for whom you might want to send the heart's spirit of loving-kindness or prayer. I think we'll do the mantra, the chant of Om Mani Padme Hum. Om is the universal sound. It's like the sound of the ocean. It has all other sounds in it. And Mani means the jewel. Padma, or Padme, is the lotus. The jewel is in the lotus, is the literal translation. And Hum is kind of an exclamation, a kind of so be it. So the jewel is in the lotus has a lot of different meanings. Uh, the simplest one is that the mind, when it sees clearly and is awake, is the jewel, the, the jewel of this awakened mind. And the lotus is the heart of compassion. And when the clarity of mind, of seeing what's true, rests in great compassion, then uh, the world is in harmony, then we're at peace. So in honor of Francine and Michelle and anyone else that you feel to include, let us chant for a time. And as we do, you can sense the spreading of this this love and compassion in every direction. Om Mani Padme Oh.
three more times. Om Mani Padme Francine, wherever you are, Michelle, remember the clear light, the pure, clear light from which everything in the universe comes, to which everything returns, the original nature of your own heart and mind, the natural state unmanifest. Let go into it. Trust this clear light. Merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. May you all be well. May you be safe. May you be at peace and happy and filled with the great heart of a Buddha. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.